you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Isaiah 46, that's where we're reading today. It's titled, The Idols of Babylon and the One True God. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burdens, but bring themselves into captivity. But themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to grey hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, all you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel is my glory. Invite you to turn your eyes to the screen for Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent.
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our duty today is one that should give us great delight. Our task is to look at this verse before us, verse 17, and see Jesus. See him, how he's been revealed to us through the scriptures. If all that we leave with this morning after everything we do in the sermon and my 35 to four hour long sermon is a greater delight in who Jesus is, a greater sense of awe about our high King of heaven, then today has been a very good day in church. Uh, Last Sunday, Pat from Melbourne East, uh, he showed us this image uh, from the the James Webb telescope and he told us that those peaks in the dust there are nine light years tall. He mentioned that each um, the scientists who studied this shot uh, were awestruck by their own insignificance in the universe. Well, check out this image also. In that image, there are thousands of galaxies, not just planets, not just individual stars, entire galaxies. Like if you zoom in, like spiral, 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 it's, for a nerd like me, mind-blowing. Now this should work an even greater feat looking at this image of making us feel tiny, uh, but also simultaneously uh, giving us a greater sense of awe and wonder as we realise this all came about simply because God spoke it into existence. All of this was made through Jesus and it was made for Jesus. Now, something happens within us when we stare at an image like that and ponder the magnitude of the universe and our tiny place Within it, And the same thing should happen uh, within us when we stare at verses like Colossians 1, 15 to 20. When we're met with the cosmic scale revelations about who Jesus Christ is. Now it's right that we would stare deeply and for a long time and let our hearts grow in adoration. Recognising just how small we are and how dependent upon him we are. And this is a part of what uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, it's a part of his intention with these verses. As Mike mentioned in the first week, Paul is going on from these verses to encourage the saints in Colossae to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, so that... No one may delude them with plausible arguments. Paul is wanting uh, to see these Christians continue to come to a, a deeper assurance and understanding of who Jesus is. And so he's intentionally articulating these truths of Jesus to give a solid foundation for their learning that shows the foolishness of these so called plausible arguments or fine-sounding arguments as the uh, New, New International Version translates it. And so today, you and I, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to stare at this image of Jesus Christ, behold His majesty, and simply be awestruck by who He is. Be awestruck for the sake of ensuring our firm foundation in the truth about Jesus. That 
Any other arguments, no matter how reasonable they might sound, can be shown to be false and empty of genuine promise. Before we do that, let's pray together that God might help. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen. And well, I've got two points this morning to help us look at Jesus, and I've got one point to help us understand how it helps us. Uh, At our staff retreat, which we had a bit over a week ago, uh, we spent a couple of hours looking at the doctrines, which uh, is a fancy word for uh, what the church believes, like a a statement or a a group of beliefs about something. So we looked at the doctrines of Jesus. We looked at his his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, etc., etc. And the, the activity was to think through the doctrines and then once we'd got our doctrines right by thinking back through our systematic theology training from Bible college um, and we'd given all the right answers to the doctrine of who Jesus is, we then asked the question, so what? And you might be wondering why we're going to spend time today deeply considering who Jesus is. Why is it important or why is it relevant to anyone else except for Bible college students or nerds to consider deep theological truths about Jesus? Probably the most important reason is that we need to make sure that we are worshipping the Jesus of the Bible. In our over-individualistic modern society, we are very subjective in our thinking. We don't have time for it now, but if we went around this room and asked each person, who is Jesus to you, we get a whole bunch of different responses. Now, obviously there's room for different expressions, but a truth is a truth. And there is only one truth of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, and that that truth is contained for us in God's word. We need to know the truth, so that we can really come to know and worship Jesus for who He is. And we do it because the goal of Christian maturity is not better behaviour, but deeper dependence. Now, better behaviour will come about because as the Spirit of God um, is willing and working in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ, we will naturally, by our new natures, live more like Christ and less like our sinful selves. But that is a fruit of our new natures. The goal, the reward of our Christian lives is always deeper dependence upon Christ. In C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian, The Return to Narnia, Lucy re-encounters Aslan after a long time. uh, And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he replies, that is because you are older, little one. She says, not because you are. Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Christian maturity is not about us becoming bigger and better, but about recognising just how big, just how good, just how satisfying Jesus Christ is. 
And so this is how we're going to approach today. We're going to stare into this cosmic painting of who Jesus is and then ask, so what? Let's uh, read our passage again, uh, Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20. Uh, Hopefully you've got your Bibles. Keep them with you. We're going to be flicking through a few verses today. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Um, You can chat to our welcome team out of the info desk. We'd love to put a Bible in your hands. Colossians 1, 15 through to 20, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our focus is on verse 17 this morning, and our first point is that Jesus is before all things. We've already encountered this kind of language in the preceding verses, but each time Paul is nuancing this revelation of who Jesus is. In verse 15, he tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And as Mike helped us to understand by reciting the Nicene Creed, Paul is not saying that Jesus is the first creation created, but Paul is referring to Christ's rights and privileges as a firstborn son. We've, um, we've recently witnessed Prince Charles III become King Charles III after Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth passed away. There was a, a natural succession that took place because of who Charles III is. And in a much grander and more significant way, this is what Paul is saying about Jesus. He is the one to whom all authority on heaven and on earth is given by the Father, and he's been appointed the heir of all things, as Hebrews 1 tells us. In verse 16, he says that it was by him, through him, and for him that all things were created. Paul is further expounding the concept of Christ's preeminence, his firstness, that Christ was not one of the creatures, but is in fact he who created. And now he's once again reiterating the preeminence, the firstness of Christ, uh, stating that Jesus is before all things. Interestingly, this phrase, before all things, is used in a, a few places, and it's also translated as above all things. So this usage by Paul isn't so much referring to Christ being first chronologically, although that is true. John 1, 1 tells us uh, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is before even the foundations of the universe had been spoken into existence. Jesus was eternally with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus was never made. He always was. In a tense discussion with some Jews in John eight fifty eight, Jesus declares that before Abraham was, I am. Jesus uses the present tense to describe himself, which is a a throwback to Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. Jesus is saying to them that not only was he alive before Moses or before Abraham some 2,000 years ago, but that he is God, that he's divine, that he is eternal. 
And we also have the shoulders of theological giants to stand upon when we come to try and gaze upon the beauty and the power of Christ to help us to understand. The 4th century Bishop Athanasius, for example, says of Jesus that the Word, um, Athanasius usually calls Jesus the Word, which you can see the Apostle John uses in uh, the Gospel of John, like we just read a moment ago, that the Word of the Father is himself divine that all things that are owe their being to his will and power and that it is through him that the Father gives order to creation, by him that all things are moved and through him that they receive their being. We, um, we had our final get-together for the year-long internship last Sunday. We had lunch together and we went around the table at one point and we asked the question, like, what was your favourite theological learning from the material that we went through over the year? Um, and I think all of us around the table said something about the Trinity, the idea that our God exists as one God in three persons and that all three persons are equally God, but there are not three gods, etc., etc. It struck me that although we can have a functioning understanding of the three-in-one triune God, we will never fully comprehend, especially in this lifetime, the infinite complexity of how the triune Godhead works. But I don't think we are meant to. I think there's something about the mystery that calls us to worship. If we could reduce God to a singularly comprehensible statement or scientific principle, we would most likely move on from worshipping that God. It's the same with this concept of Jesus being before all things and above all things, the heir of all things and the one with all authority, all the rights and privileges of a firstborn son. There's a complexity to it, a mystery to it, and it's right that we would ponder this great mystery and let it lift us to the worship of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen." as goes that great doxology or statement of praise that Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. And this is equally true of our second point today. In Him, all things hold together. The author of Hebrews helps us understand how this is happening when he says in chapter 1 verse 3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is a crucial piece of the puzzle for understanding who Jesus is and how he relates to all things in the universe. The Puritan preacher, Dr. Thomas Manton, says of Jesus that Christ has the care and charge of all the world, not to rule them only, but to sustain them. A king or a governor has a moral rule over his subjects, but Christ gives them being and existence and does preserve them and keep them in their present state and condition from disillusion. Theologically speaking, we can see uh, these two statements about Jesus reflected in the corresponding doctrine or sets of beliefs of God's transcendence and God's imminence and providence. 
Both of them are completely true of Jesus and are necessary to ensuring that we are understanding all that God has revealed about himself in Scripture. Our first statement, that he is before all things or above all things, corresponds to the doctrine of God's transcendence, that God is completely other, that he isn't part of creation, but is creator of all things. Now, this is important because we do not want to confuse the creator, God, with some sort of God that was made by human hands or can be determined by human desires or or wills. We need a God who is other than us, who is utterly different than we are in being. If you've got your Bibles, come with me to Isaiah 55. And reading verse 8 through to 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, this text isn't designed to help us try to measure just how much higher God's ways or God's thoughts are above ours, as if we could possibly put a metric against it. It's meant to show us that God is utterly different from us and that this is a good thing. Even our text this morning, verse 17, it helps us to see that Jesus is other than us. None of humanity can claim to be the visible image of God or the firstborn of creation. We can't claim to be the one through whom all things were made or that we are before all things or that in us all things hold together. These truths are only true of Jesus Christ. Equally so, our second statement, in him all things hold together, corresponds to the doctrine or the the set of beliefs of the imminence and providence of God. Imminence is a, a good summary word for explaining how God is near to his creation, while providence is a good summary word for how God is intimately involved in all creation, caring for it, sustaining it, and directing it. Big words like omnipresence, that he is present everywhere all at one time. His omnipotence, God has all and ultimate power across all the universe at one time. And his omniscience, his knowing all things, past, present and future about every minute detail of piece of creation, all known at the same time. Church, this is our God. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we stare into these marvelous truths about him, surely our hearts cannot help but be full of praise and worship to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. So, so what? Who cares? Why is any of that important to us? Why do we have decades and centuries of Bible nerds pulling all this stuff out of the Bible for us, putting it into really helpful sentences to help us learn it and understand it? Why is it so significant that we read that scripture over and over again, that we have someone as ugly as me get up and preach that text? Why is any of this important and helpful for us? Well, maybe a good way to think about it is thinking through some different worldviews. There are a few different perspectives on how God relates to creation. And by looking at them quickly, it can help us to understand why knowing 
And trusting these truths about Jesus is crucial. Firstly, there's what is known as deism. This theory uh, agrees that there is a God or a higher power that created the universe, but then it's sort of been left to its own evolutionary outworkings. Deism doesn't hold to a God that is near to creation or involved in the day today. Now, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're not sure you believe in God or Jesus or any of this stuff we've been talking about. Maybe you would more easily subscribe to the deism worldview that maybe, yeah, there, maybe there was a God, sort of kick-started everything in the beginning, but I haven't seen anything of God since then. Um, I don't really know what's going on there. Well, firstly, I want to let you know that we're so glad that you're here this morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, and this morning, I want to ask you to be challenged to see an even greater reality. Because one of the most pervasive forms of religious belief today is that I can add Jesus to my life. Almost like believing in Jesus can simply be a, a lifestyle choice. Now, I've always wanted to be someone who's known as a, a fisher, someone who's um, proficient in the art of catching fish. I love the idea of being out on the water, rod in hand, um, you know, sun gear on, reeling in some mammoth fish that I'll get to eat later on, or the idea of being a fancy fly fisher, catching rainbow trout in my waders. But I've never made it happen. I haven't invested in the gear, I haven't found a fishing community to get around, I haven't added the necessary behaviours and such to my life in order to properly pursue fishing. So here I am eating Audi fish. Sometimes we treat religion or Jesus like this. We treat the idea of trusting Jesus as if he is something that we add to our lives like a lifestyle choice. Many of us have this approach, even if we consider ourselves Christians. We treat our Christianity like we treat our hobbies or diets. We, desire, we de decide how involved God is in our lives. And a lot of us probably live more often like God is distant and that he's not intimately involved in our everything, sustaining us and leading us. But the worldview that the Bible proclaims uh, which has been titled Theism. It also believes that God created all things, as we've seen in our text today, but it also very confidently asserts that God is intimately involved, connected, and concerned for his creation. The Bible claims that God is near to his creation, caring for his creation, sustaining it and preserving it, orchestrating all things for the good of those that love him. And I guess the obvious question then is, well, if God created it all and is near to all, then why do bad things happen? Why do innocent people die in horrible wars? Why do people get sick? Why do cataclysmic climate events happen and destroy homes and livelihoods? And the, the hard truth to hear is that bad things happen because Mankind chose to rebel against a good and holy God. We chose to rebel against God's good ways and try in our own effort to become God's ourselves. Since that moment, sin has been corrupting every part of creation. And the Bible tells us that even creation itself 
is crying out for redemption. Created matter is crying out for freedom from the corruption of sin. But this is how we know that God did not abandon his creation. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into the world, into creation, as one of us, to die the death that we deserve because of our sin and rebellion against God. And Jesus rose to life three days later, proving his victory over sin and death and made a way for those who would trust in his perfect work to come back into right relationship with the Father. Church, God is not distant. He is very, very near and he alone has made it possible for you and I to be with him once again. On top of this great truth and reality, our verse tells us that in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus hasn't kick-started some evolutionary chain of events and then taken a very long holiday in a prettier part of the universe. No, he is the only reason that all things hold together. All the way from Gravity holding entire galaxies suspended in space all the way down to even the sparrow's food supply, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 26. The Westminster Confession of Faith helps us to understand this truth more precisely, saying that God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures, actions and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, we can't unpack this statement this morning, but we can see that through Jesus, God made all things and sustains all things. His otherness and his nearness, his transcendence and his imminence, that he is before all things and above all things, and in him all things hold together. These dual truths and reality of who Jesus is are cause for our great hope. It's our great hope because we can trust that the God that we've been told to come before is the one true God, the one God of all power, all might, all knowledge, that there is nothing in the universe that is new to him or a surprise to him, that he isn't bound by our time or our earthly systems, that he is, that he is utterly different and above all of the struggles, problems and stresses of our groaning world. And yet, church, he is very, very near. The psalmist tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. This transcendent Jesus who is above all and before all calls you and I to be near to him. Not only did Jesus enter into our world as born as a baby, living among us as one of us, living for us a perfectly obedient life, but he also welcomes to himself, welcomes us to himself and tells us to take our troubles to him. Again, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. 
reading from verse 25. It says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, we see God's transcendence. It is God who decides to reveal himself to his creation, and ultimately, God decided to do that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 28 continues, Jesus saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And church, therein lies the beauty of God's gracious imminence. His kind nearness to his creation. Not only did Jesus come to earth, die our death, rise to triumphant life that we might live, but he also offers to be near to those who are broken and hurting. He promises rest for weary souls and he grants us to carry his yoke and his burden, which are easy and light because we are resting in his finished work. Christ not only created us, he sustains us and we are made for him. And so we can bring our personal problems to him for he knows how to solve them. It helps our hearts to be reminded time and time again of who Jesus is because we are too easily distracted by other things, too easily convinced that we can solve our own issues in our own strength. Ultimately, there's still that sinful part of us that still believes we can do a better job of being God than God can. And so we wrestle against the idea of bringing our problems, our storms in life to the one who is above all things and who holds all things. But heed these words from God in Isaiah 46, as Leah beautifully read out for us, Earlier on, I'm reading from verse 3 to 11. It says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to grey hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Church, that's our word this morning. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose." Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will 
do it. God is the one true God and it's he alone who can carry us according to his will. The idols that you and I build like our careers, our finances, our families, our statuses, our relationships, these things cannot carry us. They cannot hold us. They cannot give us the rest that we only find in Christ. Let's be encouraged this morning to bring our anxieties to him to cast our cares on his shoulders, to be enraptured by an ever-increasing, ever-enlarging image of who Jesus is. Remember the quote from the C.S. Lewis novel that Lucy asks Aslan if he's grown bigger. But Aslan replies, no, I haven't grown bigger. You have. And the more that I grow, the bigger I get. Jesus is the one who simultaneously holds galaxies in their place while also knowing you completely, knowing every part of who you are. And he is near to us. but We can come to him with our weariness, with our heavy hearts, knowing and trusting his goodness, knowing that he is before all things, and that in him all things hold together. Knowing that whatever we might face tomorrow when we go to work or when we have uh, that conversation with a colleague, when family visit at Christmas time, when we see the doctor next, when we see how our world governments are crumbling all across the globe and it looks like nuclear oblivion is just around the corner, knowing that Jesus is above all these things and that ultimately in him all these things are holding together gives us great reason for trusting Jesus. Trusting that we can have those difficult conversations, that we can face the uncertainties and ultimately know that our sin and shame and the fear of death has been graciously dealt with by our Father in heaven through Jesus because we trust these truths about who he is. As I invite the band up, I mentioned at the start that the goal of our knowing Jesus rightly is so that we can worship him rightly. That, our, that we can have the assurance that our powerful hiking is near to us and that we can come to him. Church, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere at all times, completely. Through Jesus, he made all things that have been made and they were made for Jesus. And alongside this great truth, Jesus hold, holds all things together by the power of his word. And he is near to his creation and has called us to draw near to him for our life and everything. Let's pray together this morning. King Jesus, you alone are before all things, and in you all things hold together. Thank you that you made a way for us, sinful as we are, to come before your presence by dying in our place on the cross and rising to life three days later. Thank you that you not only made us, but that you are intimately involved in every part of your creation, that you sustain us, hold us, and welcome us to find rest in you alone. Help us to know these truths, 
trust them and see the glory of Christ, the majesty of his love and his great care for every part of us that we might draw near to him and not to other false things. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.